Good weekend, everybody. You know, we face a lot of bad news in this world that we live in today. And this past week, of course, what happened in Florida is such a tragedy. It happens too often. Once is more often than it should happen. We'll pray about that in a moment. But sometimes we forget about the good news. I think we need to remember that. And I hope you're aware that you're helping write some of the good news headlines. I want to give you an example of that. Last weekend, we invited you, if you wanted to, to fill out some little Valentine cards with some personal words that we then put in a bag of goodies and distributed to uh, four different schools, Urban Venture, and then also our Borrow Tutoring Program. Across all our campuses, we did 1,200 bags. And um, those got distributed, and they were a huge hit. In fact, Lucy Craft Lady, one of the schools we help on the north side, sent us just a, a picture of one of the classrooms. Kids are all giving you some love there. These kids face a lot of stress and challenges. And um, on the social blog, the words that were written were, uh, Laney love is not just a hashtag, it's a reality. Thank you to Wooddale Church for loving the staff. And then they talk about also then sharing uh, what we refer to as the Valentines for all. They say it was amazing. They say, you know, when you love our teachers, then we know the kids are gonna get loved and they appreciate the tutoring we do there and the participation. So. Uh, just a shout out, a thanks to you for helping make that happen at a lot of different schools. We also are part of the Sheridan's program. We've identified a school that we help in the Richfield School District where some of the kids don't have food on the weekend. It's uh, uh, kind of a vulnerable situation and we have a team that packs the food, sticks it in their lockers so no, no embarrassment and they take home a backpack full of food. And I got a, a message the other day from one of the assistants and they said, a little girl told me her backpack was heavy today. I asked her, do you have lots of homework? And she said, no, it's the food. I'm so happy on Fridays because I get food. And that, I mean, it's not just, you know, somewhere else in the world, right? Here in our neighborhoods. And so thanks for providing some good news to people and uh, encourage your hearts. My desire as we think about the future of our church and what our vision gets expanded to look like you know, one of the words that keeps coming to mind is hope. I just want us to become an epicenter of irresistible hope. And we're going to be exploring what that looks like in the months to come and sharing that with you. I just know God's call us to bring the hope of Christ to the world around us in very tangible ways. Right now, let's pray together, though. Father, we thank you for the good news that you're making happen through your people, Lord, at Wooddale Church. Father God, we think about the bad news in our world right now, and we think of what happened in Florida, and Lord, our minds can't get around the tragedy. All we can do is pray for the families and the victims. We pray for believers involved, that they would step up the plate and show the love of Christ. And we pray for our nation, oh God. Deal with our leaders, Father. Deal with us as a nation. Bring us to repentance. Bring us to return to you. Recognize and guard the sanctity of human life. From conception, Lord, to old age, I pray that everybody's life will be valued and that we would become truly our brother and sister's keeper and not violator. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Um, I want to talk about guilt. That's bad news. Let's all say that beautiful word together. One, two, three. Guilt, guilt right? How many of you have ever experienced guilt? Let me see your hands. All of us have. We all have. 
We feel guilty for uh, all kinds of things. We feel guilty for things we've done that we shouldn't have done. We feel guilty about um, things that we wish we had done and didn't do. We feel guilty about thoughts we've had. We feel guilty when, you know, we're in a better situation than somebody else. How do you get rid of bad guilt? How do you get rid of guilt, period? Let's talk about that. By the way, when people talk about guilt, they always seem to use one word in particular. It's the word feeling. We talk about feeling guilty about this, feeling guilty about that. And what's interesting is that guilt is oftentimes associated with other kinds of emotions that we have. Like, for instance, anger. I'm so angry because you make me feel so guilty. Have any of you ever said that? Probably not at 11 o'clock. The other services, I'm sure, have. (laughs) Or how about anxiety? I feel so anxious today because I said this to her and I'm afraid she took it the wrong way and I'm just nervous about it. I'm upset, so anxious about it. Or, you know, when you criticize me, you make me feel so guilty because I feel like I'm, I'm just, I'm worthless. So, you know, just a small little smattering of all the different ways we feel and experience guilt. How do you get rid of that? How do you deal with that? If you ask the secular culture, it's throughout history had different kinds of answers. And the popular answer today for overcoming guilt is really to ignore it, to deny it, because guilt is seen as subjective. It's a feeling. It's an emotion. And maybe the guilt you have has been imposed on you by your family, by your religion, by your background. And you just need to get out of that. Distance yourself from those people. Distance yourself from that belief. Find folks who feel like you, who believe like you. Just deny guilt. Retrain your brain. You don't need guilt. doesn't work. I heard about a man who walked into a bar and he ordered a glass of beer. He was not a Baptist. And the uh, bartender gave him his glass of beer. And right away, he took that glass of beer and threw it in the face of the bartender and immediately said, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry for what I did. He goes, I can't help it. I have this compulsion that when I get a glass of beer in my hand, like I just want to throw it in the face of the person who gave it to me. He said, I'm so sorry. I don't know what to do about it. And the bartender's getting all cleaned up. And he said, man, you got a real problem because you need to get some help. If you don't get some help, you're never going to be served in here again. So for the next several months, this guy didn't show up to the watering hole. And, and then all of a sudden he was back one day. And he says to the bartender, he says, I'd like a glass of beer. And the bartender says, I remember you. I'm not going to serve you beer. Remember what happened last time? He said, not to worry. He said, I've been seeing a psychiatrist. I've been going to the therapist. I've been in this program. And I am cured. It's okay now. We can visit the bartender. So the bartender poured him a glass of beer. And sure enough, the man took the glass of beer and, and just shook it in the face of, and splashed it in the face of the bartender, who was absolutely shocked. He said, I thought you were cured. He said, I am. I still like to do this. I just don't feel guilty anymore. (laughs) If it were only so simple, right? Some of you are like, what? Huh? (laughs) I guess there are two ways that we could try to deal with guilt. One is just live up to everybody's standards and everybody's expectations. But if you've ever tried that, it doesn't work. It does not work. Other option is... Well, okay, I just forget it. You know, I'm going to buy into Elsa's little song and Frozen, you know... No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free, okay? But then you wake up 3 a.m. haunted with guilt because you can't get rid of it. You know, Lady Macbeth in the play Macbeth, you know, she, there's that scene where she is looking at her hands and there's these phantom blood stains, and she keeps saying, you know, out, 
damn spot. Out, out, out. She can't get rid of it because she was the one who coerced and manipulated her husband to kill the king. And she's just, I just can't get rid of it. I just can't get rid of it. Maybe the reason we can't get rid of it is because we don't understand that guilt is a symptom of a much deeper problem. You know, when you're sick and you don't get better, you start to run a fever, there's an infection, there's a soreness that won't go away, you go to the physician and you ask her, you say, can you take a look at me and, and find out what's causing this? And what you want her to do is get to the source. Because you want to get the source treated with whatever it's going to take so the symptoms will stop. You don't want her to treat the symptoms, you want her to treat the source. So oftentimes we deal with the symptom and we, and we don't deal with the source, even as Christians. And by the way, Christians are notorious for dealing with, with struggling with guilt. Not just the problem that non-Christians have, right? So, so what is the source? What is the cause of, of this guilt that I'm experiencing in my life? Well, the source comes down to the fact that each one of us, every one of us, is a lawbreaker, a.k.a. sinner. And all of us have broken this moral code that God has established in the universe. See, God didn't just create the laws of physics, like the law of gravity. God also created a moral code in the universe, And when God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, God said to Adam and Eve, I want you to obey me. I want you to follow my instructions. If you do, you'll be blessed. If you don't, there's consequences. And Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They stepped out of the garden. And as a result of that, guilt came into the heart of men and women to this very day because we're all their children. And all of us are born with that nature to rebel against God. In fact, let's do this. Um, in a moment, I'm going to ask you, look at the person next to you. If you're watching online, you can do it to somebody maybe in your house or talk to yourself, whatever is going to work for you. I just want you to look at the person next to you. I want you to say, I'm a born rebel. One, two, three. Do it. <laughs> now, here's the problem. Some of you enjoy doing that. Right? You got it tattooed on your arm, born rebel. It's a song, right? But it's the truth. We are born rebellious. We are born to want to live out of bounds. And guilt is like that warning signal that says, you need to correct course and you need to come back in bounds again. The problem is we struggle against that. We, we, we want to be right, but we want to be right in our own way, in our own way. And so God has, God has put this moral code it's, it's been stitched in the very fabric of the universe. You don't have to be a Christian, all right, to wrestle with this. Everybody's affected by it. When my parents were missionaries in Papua New Guinea, they ministered among people who were Stone Age people. They had never seen a Westerner. They never seen anybody outside of their own tribe. They, they hardly wore clothes, all right? They, they uh, dressed, you know, like you would envision uh, primitive people dressing. They never heard of God. They never heard of Jesus. They certainly never had seen a cross before. They had never, they didn't, I need to say it in this audience, they didn't know what Facebook was <laughs> because Facebook did not exist yet, all right? None of that existed. Yet, as primitive as they were, they knew right from wrong. And with that, they had a sense of justice that wrongs had to be paid for, had to be punished, something had to be done. Well, where did that come from? It's part of our very DNA, we are created in the image and likeness of God, and we have been put into a world that demands justice. 
So guilt is this nagging reminder of my sinfulness. Emil Bruner, the Swiss theologian, put it this way. He said, guilt is the sense that your past is present, but you can't get rid of it. Emil Bruner, guilt is the sense that your past is present. It's with you, and man, it's like, I can't get rid of this. It's like it's attached to the back of my soul. And I struggle with this, which creates a big problem. And the big problem is that, according to Romans chapter 3, verse 10, verse 12, verse 20, I'm in this situation and I can't improve it, and I'm never going to make it better. And Romans 6.23 says, the wages, the consequence of this is death, not just physical death, but spiritual death and separation from God. And I know it's not popular, but what the Bible calls hell. That's That's my destiny. That's my destination. And I cannot change course. It's the way it's going to be. There's no hope for me. Big problem for me. But it's also, in a sense, a big problem for God because You see, God, by his nature, though he's the God who is just, he's also God who loves. And I'm his creation. And the Bible says he's willing that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. By the way, some of you may be tempted to think right now, hey, this is Sunday school stuff. Man, I I learned this. I got a degree in this. When are you going to get something deeper? Well, hang on to your boots. Because if we think the cross is not deep, then we have probably the answer to why we struggle so much with guilt. There's a depth to this that you'll discover in just a few minutes. But God, God in his love decides he's gonna solve the problem for us. Which takes us to something he says in the book of Romans. We're gonna be here this weekend and next weekend. Verse six, he says, you see, at just the right time, that's God's timing, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And I want, I want to ask you a question rhetorically. Can you own being called powerless and ungodly? Can you own that apart from Christ, that's who you are? I know a lot of people in secular culture can't handle that. I know a lot, and by the way, I'm, I'm all for counseling and I'm all for, for uh, psychology, psychiatry, I... I Thank God for these professionals, especially those who are followers of Christ. But there is a movement in some of those circles that the way we overcome our sinfulness is don't, you shouldn't think about your powerlessness. You shouldn't think about how ungodly you are. Don't, in fact, you even shouldn't really think about being a sinful person. That's stuff that's been imposed on you. And a lot of Christians struggle with this too. Or the NLT puts it this way, New Living Translation, when we're utterly helpless, can you own that? Can you, can you admit, I'm, I'm utterly helpless apart from Christ? Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. If we were to be honest with each other, you know, when you're in a healthy place, when you're in an American state like Minnesota, where there's a lot of success, and there's a lot of money, and there's a lot of education, there's a lot of we can do it kind of spirit, it's hard to admit I'm helpless Hard to admit I'm hopeless. Hard to admit I'm ungodly. After all, I'm well-educated. I think I can handle this. I think I have the capacity. Sometimes the secular world, we talked a little about this last weekend, just really struggles with this cross. They struggle with the fact that somebody died on this cross and they had to die for me because I'm a sinful human being. 
that I somehow put him on the cross. That's what we said. Paul said to so many people, the cross is foolishness. This message of Jesus dying for us is foolish because really, I'm not that bad a person compared to... It's hard for us. Why couldn't God just say, I forgive you? I mean, he spoke and the stars were put in place. He spoke and the earth was made. He spoke and the, and the giraffe was made. He spoke and the water. And I mean, he spoke and everything happened. Why couldn't you just say, I forgive? <clears throat> That'd be a whole lot easier, wouldn't it? Because God can't. There are a lot of things God could speak into being, but God cannot speak forgiveness into being. He cannot sin and he can't just forgive. Why? Why so? Why can't God just forgive? Well, let's take an illustration. I want you to imagine we're in a courtroom, okay? You're all, you're all there just observing the case. And there's a judge, and there's a man brought before the judge, and this man is a, is a rapist, been caught raping a woman. He's brought to the judge. The judge looks at the man, and the man says to the judge, Your Honor, I admit that I raped this woman. Um, I can't help myself. I just was overcome with passion, and I just did it. And I, I just, I, I'm sorry that I did it. And, and you know what? I'm, I'm going to go, go to therapy. I'm going to work on this thing. It'll never, it'll never happen again. It just, you know, it's just one of those things, kind of a little accident. Sorry about that. And the judge, the judge looks at him. We're all listening, watching. And the judge says to him, you know, I feel sorry for you. And I, I can tell that's really not who you are. So you know what? Case dismissed. Good luck. How many of you would be outraged at the judge? Let me see your hands. Absolutely. Why would you be outraged? Because of your sense of justice, right? There needs to be justice in this situation. You can't let this go. It has to be dealt with. You cannot have a universe without justice. If you do, you end up with anarchy. It implodes. Like you can't have the universe without gravity. It won't, it, it just doesn't work. It has to have those laws and justice has to be in place. And God demands justice. And that's why he can't just say, I forgive. Justice has to happen. By the way, it is the fact that God is a God of justice that gives us the capacity as Christians, not to be vengeful. There's a, a professor out of Yale, his name was, last name is Wolf, and he had been in Croatia with all the genocide, and he was a theology professor, and, and he talked about the fact that what keeps us from seeking vengeance and destroying each other, especially as Christians, is when we realize that God is, God is just. And he points to Romans 12, 19, a little bit of a sidebar, and he says, Paul said, dear friends, never take revenge. Have you ever wanted to? I have. Never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scripture says, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. In other words, for those who don't repent and make restitution, you can be assured God's keeping an account. And in the end, they'll be held accountable for it. They'll be judged for it. So God is this God of justice. So how does he take out his justice on you and me? We're these sinners, ungodly people. John Stott, in his book, The Cross, sums it up in this beautiful statement. He says, for the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. So in the garden, God said, Adam and Eve, you can eat the fruit from any of the trees, but not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat, you will die. Serpent comes along and says to Adam and Eve, hey, listen, Satan says, 
uh, God's actually really nervous you'll eat that fruit because when you eat that fruit, you will actually be like God. You don't have to have a God. You'll be your own God. And so the man and the woman, they step out of the balance, they take the fruit, and ever since then, we are imposters. Ever since then, there are like six billion of us trying to impersonate God, trying to be our own gods. We substituted ourselves for God, and we're not very good gods. Would you agree? Look at the world. Look at your relationships. Look at yourself. But listen to what Stott says. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. God says, I have to mete out justice. There has to be death and condemnation, but rather than you going to the cross, I'm going to put my son on the cross, and I'm going to mete out the judgment and the condemnation on him. He's going to take it, in essence, for you. And that leads us to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Listen carefully. Paul says, God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know what that means? It means that Jesus, it means that the father looks at his son like it's you or me. And it's like Jesus is the thief. He's the gossip. He's the critic. He's the dishonest one. He's the one that's struggling with pornography. He's the one that's done this. He's the one that's done that. He's the sinner. And he looks at you and me as though we've always been with him. We're his son. We're perfect. We've never done a thing wrong. And he takes out the judgment on his son. That's why Jesus cries out, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he becomes blemished with our sin. He becomes our substitute. God then instead adopts us into his family, brings us into his family. That's pretty deep, don't you think? So the question is, why? Knowing that, why is it that so many of us still struggle with guilt? I like what Tim Keller says about this. He says, I think the problem is this. We do not grasp the magnitude of our sinfulness. Now think about that for a minute, with me for a moment because it's confusing at first. You would think that if a person grasped the magnitude of their sinfulness, they would feel, le- they would feel more guilt. But that's not true. If you really grasp the magnitude of your sinfulness, you will ultimately feel no guilt. Because to grasp the magnitude of your sinfulness is to realize there's not a thing that you can do to make it right with God. Guilty, charged, and condemned is what it boils down to. Jeremiah is not very flattering. In Jeremiah 17, 9, he said, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? In other words, what he's saying is the human case is hopeless and I need to own the hopelessness of that case, but it is so hard for us to do. Go back to Galatians with me for a moment. We talked about it last weekend. Paul would start a church, he would leave, and then he said in Galatians 2.12, the party of the circumcision would follow him in and cause trouble. Who were the party of circumcision? They were Jewish Christians, but they had the gospel out of order. They would show up and they would say to the people, look, Paul was wrong. First, you must obey the law, ceremonial law, dietary law, males must be circumcised. First, that's what you gotta do. Then believe in Jesus, okay? So obey the law, okay? Then believe in Jesus, then you're saved. 
keep all the right things, live righteously, believe, be saved. Paul said, that's not the gospel. The order of the gospel is God saved you. You don't deserve it. Believe that Jesus died for your sins and then obey out of that. It is our propensity, it is our nature to get the gospel out of order all the time in our own lives. It is our nature to feel like I have to perform to stay in God's good graces. I gotta do what's right for God to like me and to love me. When I blow it, I need to do more right things for God to love me. Our motive behind so much of what we do is because we want God to like us. We want to be accepted by God. I'm telling you, nothing you do is gonna make you acceptable to God. Nothing, zero, nothing. You're ungodly, you're sinful, it's hopeless. I gotta grab the magnitude of my sinfulness in order to experience the magnitude of God's grace and God's love. I read something the other day that I didn't like. It said, when you are critical of others, be very, very careful because Oftentimes, in criticizing others, what you're doing is you're using the criticism of them to make you feel better about your own spirituality. So I was very critical of somebody on television the other day who deserved to be criticized. And then I got to check in my spirit, like, okay, so yes, they deserve to be criticized because what they stand for is absolutely wrong. But why are you doing this right now? Does it make you feel better? Does it make you feel more Christian? Does it make you feel that that you're more accepted by God? Man, I had to hunt that down and ask what's going on in my soul. It's so much a part of our nature. But the more I come to grips with the magnitude of my sin, the greater God's forgiveness and greater God's grace is in my life. And there's a story that relates that to us found in Luke chapter seven. It's one of my favorite stories of God's mercy and gospel. Found over in Luke seven, let me read it for you. I gotta hurry because of time. Jesus is at the home of a Pharisee named Simon. Simon's checking Jesus out. He thinks that maybe Jesus is a prophet. They're gathered at a banquet. Simon's invited other friends. They're at a low-lying table. Their left arms on the elbow, or their left elbow's on a pillow. They eat with the right hand. Their feet are extended from them and in comes an uninvited guest. And she stands at the feet of Jesus and she begins to weep and sob. She crumples at his feet. She washes his feet with her hair. She pours out her most costly earthly possession, her perfume. She kisses his feet profusely. Simon freaks out. Simon's thinking to himself, well, I know he's not a prophet because he was a prophet. He knew who that woman was. She's a known sinner in town and she wouldn't let this happen. And he wouldn't let this happen. Well, Jesus knows what's going on. In verse 41, he says, I want to tell you a story. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What is Jesus saying? Here's this woman. She's a sinner. Oh, yes, she's a sinner, all right. 
She understands the magnitude of her sin. She has placing herself in essence before me, not the cross yet, but kind of a picture of the cross. She's laying it all down. And because she's laying it all down and understands how utterly helpless and hopeless she is, she receives so much forgiveness. You, Simon, man, you can't even give me the customary Middle Eastern greeting. You look at that woman to make yourself feel better about yourself. You think you're more holy. You, you don't really feel like you need a whole lot of forgiveness. Therefore, you don't get much forgiveness. Although you're just as lost and just as sinful as she is. Do you see what I mean? You gotta grab the magnitude of your sinfulness. Appreciate the magnitude of God's grace because it's not just me looking at the cross and realizing how sinful I am that I put him there on the cross. He substituted himself there for me, but it's then also looking long enough that I get past my sinfulness and I see his grace and I see his love and I see his amazing goodness. I want you to imagine that you have financially made a mess, all right? You've made bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. And you get a call from the mortgage company. They say, tomorrow, we're kicking you out of your house. Your best friend comes over. He understands what's happening. He knows what took place. And he comes to you and he hands you a check for $50,000. And he says, look, this will, this will make you right. This is going to save your family. I'm giving it to you. I don't want anything back. I don't even want you to say thank you. I'm just giving this to you because I love you. Now imagine he sets the check down. You put it on the table and you look at the check. And as you look at the check, you get angry. You get upset. You say to him, you know, this check, I hate this check because this check reminds me of all the poor decisions I've made, of how stupid I've been financially, of all the mistakes I've made, of how I've been so irresponsible. It just angers me to see this check. It just reminds me too much of how bad I am. I'm tearing it up. There, take it. You would say that. You would say, that person's nuts for doing that. This is a gift. Take the gift. The same thing with the cross. Am I going to look at the cross and just say, I hate the cross because it reminds me how sinful I am? Am I going to look at the cross and realize, wow, what a gift God has given me, as sinful as I am? Paul says in Romans chapter 5, he says, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I think what Paul is saying is this. You know what? When you are the enemy of God, you deserve to be judged. No hope for you. But while you're a sinner, Christ made up his mind he was going to die for you. As sure as you were one day going to be judged, you can be equally assured that in Christ you will be saved. You'll be saved. You'll be rescued. You're reconciled to God. So why do we hang on to guilt? Because somehow we have this thing in our mind that is still about earning it and keeping it. And it makes us grumpy, critical people. When if we could just shed the weight of our guilt, we would be living out of joy. So you know the story Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan's story, character in there, his name is Christian. 
Christian's got this huge, heavy weight on his back and he wants to get rid of guilt. And so Mr. Legality tells him that the way to get rid of guilt is to climb the mountain of morality. So he starts climbing the mountain of morality and he notices that with every step he takes, instead of getting lighter, it's getting heavier. He thinks to himself, you know, you'd think this thing would be getting lighter, but it's getting, it's getting, it's getting harder. And then finally, he comes to a hill. And he notices off the side a grave, a sepulcher. And as he starts to climb the hill, and as he gets close to the top of the hill, he sees a cross. And as he begins to look up and up and up on the cross, the weight of the guilt just falls off. And it rolls down into the sepulcher, into the grave. And all of a sudden, tears break out in Christian's eyes and down his face. He jumps up three times and he rejoices. And he says, blessed be the cross, blessed be the sepulcher. Rather, may it be blessed is the man who took the shame from me. When you see the cross, do you bless the cross? I don't mean the piece of wood. I mean the Savior who died on the cross for you. Do you bless the grave where your sins are buried with him? And the stone was rolled away and he rose again. Do you see it as your place of emancipation? God says, God says, take your guilt, take your efforts, take your performance, and please just hang it up here. That's why my son died. I want to trade out something with you. You give me your guilt, your shame, and I'm going to give you my grace and my forgiveness. Are you carrying a weight today? If you're a Christian, you're carrying guilt with you. There's got to be one of three reasons why. One, you gave him your sin. You've kept your guilt. Two, you gave him your guilt, but you've kept your sin. You're saying, God, I don't like feeling this way. Please take this away from me, but you're still doing it. You're still saying it. You're still acting that way. Or three, you gave him your sin. You gave him your guilt. But you know what? There's somebody you need to ask to forgive you. Jesus says in the Gospels, if you come to me and all of a sudden you realize that you've got something with somebody else, you need to go make it right with them. Wouldn't it be wonderful today to just dump it all here today at the cross and walk out in emancipation and walk out in joy? Not performance, not works, not earning, not impressing, not comparing. Be just free to love God because God loves you. Would you bow your heads with me, please? I would ask you not to run out today if you, if you don't mind. We're, this is going to be a really special time. So you can just stay a couple minutes, even if we go one or two minutes past, please. Because I want to give you an opportunity today to dump your guilt. I want to give you an opportunity today to let go of the past, whether it's phantom guilt, false guilt, the real guilt, whether it's a sin, whether it's an issue you need to let go of. I want to give you that chance today I want, I want you to have a chance to come to the cross. So, Father, as we, we invite your Holy Spirit now to just to roam the room, roam our hearts, roam our minds. Show us, Lord. Show us where we've gotten the gospel out of order. Show us where we think we somehow have to do something to earn your love and be approved by you. Show us where we've been comparing and competing. Show us where we're hanging on to sin and we need to let it go. 
Show us who we need to reconcile with, Lord, so we can be free, 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 free.